MSW Media. President Biden announced new measures to promote vaccination and combat the COVID pandemic. Will conservative judges strike them down as unconstitutional? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. She can't be with us today, so let's just get right into it and thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. So I will just tell, just say as a starting point that the reason I wanted to make sure that we had a podcast on this topic is I think this is a topic that is being overly simplified. I was on MSNBC on Friday, and uh, Ari Melber, who I greatly respect, uh, who's the host, was talking about this subject, and he said, look, this is you know, plainly constitutional. The president has that authority. Uh, I have seen legal scholars, some legal scholars, saying the same thing. I've seen others uh, talking about how complicated this is and how there are certain things that President Biden did that may be struck down by conservative judges. Now, I will just say that one thing that you're going to learn, I think, from this conversation, what President Biden did was not one thing. It was actually a group of things. And each one of those things is going to have a different justification. Some of them are going to be uh, very unlikely for any judge to, to question. Others may end up being more controversial. And that's why I'm having this discussion. That's why I decided to do this, because you know, we, th- this would not be the first time uh, listeners of this podcast might be surprised about how the judicial system works things out. And that's really the purpose here is for us to understand, okay, all of us, I think, are, are concerned about this pandemic. Many of us are going to be very sympathetic towards the policy arguments underlying this. And I think the question for today, the questions for today and for today's discussion are going to be whether or not President Biden's actions were constitutional, whether there's going to be any uh, risk that a judge might disagree, what precedent this potentially sets, how this, the, you know, how this action could potentially set a precedent that could justify other actions in the future, uh, and what we should be expecting in the months ahead, because there's going to be some twists and turns potentially to come. So I'm going to be, because Patty couldn't be here today uh, unexpectedly, 
Uh, I'm going to bring in our guest right now, and that is Professor Roderick Hills. Uh, usually goes by Rick Hills. Very well-known professor at NYU School of Law. He uh, not only was a clerk in the Supreme Court way back in the day, uh, before that he actually, um, you know, he clerked for uh, the same judge as I did right after uh, graduating from Yale Law School. But he was, he's also a professor who is a, a scholar focusing a lot on federalism, on the authority of the federal government to take action and how that interplays with the states. Uh, he, you may have seen him being quoted in the New York Times discussing the, this very topic about the constitutionality of the actions taken by President Biden. And I think what we're going to see in the upcoming weeks and months with you know Republican governors already uh, thumbing their nose, uh, trying to overturn or countervene President Biden's actions, I think we're going to see this power struggle play out, this federalism struggle. And so he's a perfect guide to us for this topic in particular. So let's bring in Professor Hills. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Hills. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So I have to say, we've heard, I think all of us have heard a lot about President Biden's recent uh, announcement, his efforts to encourage vaccination, to combat uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that most commentators and most of the discussion we've had, it kind of talks about it as if it's one thing, one big thing. Uh, it seems to me that actually... Uh, the administration did a number of different things. Can you help us understand exactly what it is that the administration did? Sure. Um, so the first most public thing that the uh, President Biden did is issue an executive order. Uh, people are very confused about executive orders. As my friend um, Nick Bagley points out, executive orders actually don't do anything to you or me. Executive orders are directed to agencies, and they say to agencies, hey, agencies or cabinet departments, do something. So it's a big mistake to think of an executive order as actually directly coercing a private citizen. Um, so the, now the next question is, OK, what did the executive order say? Well, the executive order said a lot of things. It instructed various agencies of government to take various actions. Um, I think the most controversial thing it did, and I'll lead with that, is it told the Department of Labor, and specifically the Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Safety and Health, known as the OSH Administrator, to come up with what's known as an emergency temporary standard for COVID at the workplace. So that's one thing they did. They regulated private workplaces with more than 100 people. Another thing that Biden did is instruct the federal government um, to tell contractors that they would have to vaccinate their employees. These are people who do business in the federal government but are not employed as employees by the federal government. A third thing he did was to tell federal employees, hey, you got to get vaccinated. Now, all of these things are packed into an executive order that broadly conceived requires vaccination. But keep in mind that the regulation of private employees won't come into effect until the Department of Labor actually issues an emergency temporary standard, affectionately known as an ETS. Now, I want to add one other point. 
Biden in July um, instructed and the OSHA administrator issued, actually issued a emergency temporary standard for COVID for healthcare workers. Now that emergency temporary standard, that ETS did not require healthcare workers to get vaccinated, but it did require employers of healthcare workers to provide training, ventilation, personal protective equipment, social distancing, all as part of a COVID plan. Um, and the employers were also supposed to provide paid leave to healthcare workers so they could voluntarily get vaccinated. So it's not like there's some novelty here to the federal government's requiring employers to do something about vaccination. But that, in a, I hope, not too large of a nutshell, is roughly what Biden did. And I, I tend to divide it into three categories. There's also a fourth category dealing with healthcare workers who um, are financed through Medicare and Medicaid, requiring them to get vaccinated. I think that's helpful. And what I want, our, our listeners always are interested in understanding uh, what's going on in a more in-depth way. And that's why I wanted to break this down, because it seems to me that the easiest category or the category in which the federal government has the most authority is over its own employees, right? You're already requiring them to do a lot of things that they that they couldn't require an ordinary citizen to do, right? You have to come to work or you have to show up on time and fill out your timesheets and all sorts of other things. Uh, they would presumably, I would think, have greater power there. Can you explain to us what the power would be of the federal government over requiring its own employees to get vaccinated? First of all, the employees you know, may raise constitutional claims, but those are considerably weaker than the constitutional claims of a private citizen, simply because, as you say, um, you're required to do a lot of things as a condition of employment, federal employment. You know, if you work for the CIA, you obviously sacrifice your First Amendment right of free speech. You can't go publishing a newspaper article about your inside information. So you, you often have to actually waive constitutional rights as a condition of federal employment. Putting aside the Constitution, which is not totally inapplicable, but normally um, applies in a weak way in the context of federal employment. Normally, you simply have to show that the condition of employment is related, reasonably related to um, doing your job. There is also some important federal statutes. Um, so the Federal Labor Relations Act regulates the relationship between the federal government and federal employee unions. And the chiefs of some federal unions have made a fuss um, maybe a reasonable fuss that the requirement of vaccination should be a condition of collective bargaining. That should be a subject of collective bargaining. Um, and that the federal government should not do this unilaterally, but instead talk to the unions and um, come up with something um, that's consistent with collective bargaining rights. When something is a topic of, quote, mandatory collective bargaining under the federal Labor Relations Act is actually a complicated subject. But I think that if what you're trying to do is protect the public from an infected federal worker, you know, say you go to Social Security and the clerk is not vaccinated and they're going to hand you your Social Security check or breathe on you um, or an FBI agent's going to arrest you. I imagine that that's probably not even a permissible topic of public bargaining. Normally, things that protect the public are not actually subjects of collective bargaining. Normally, the things that are subjects of collective bargaining are wages and hours for sure, and some conditions of employment that are not directly related to the safety of the public. So that'll be an interesting topic, but my guess is that Biden's on strong grounds and saying, look, this is something I can do 
as the chief administrator, I don't need to go through collective bargaining to protect the public. That makes sense to me. And what what I do wonder, though, is let's just say you have some group of federal employees who decide that they don't want to comply. Uh, we've seen a lot of the. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen this on social media. There's been a lot of discussion. Members of the military who are angry about this. What you know, I, I it can be difficult to end the employment of a federal employee. How how could this oh, yes. mechanism be enforced? <laughs> um, the normal method of enforcement is the Office of Personnel Management, a federal agency, brings an action against the recalcitrant employee before something called the Merit Protection Services Board basically shows that there is good cause to discipline or even terminate a federal employee. And um, the, the, the board is a nonpartisan and um, life tenured, I'll say life tenured roughly. Um, they're protected from dismissal, impartial tribunal that'll decide whether there's good cause. The board would make a decision about whether the employee was insubordinate. If an employee is insubordinate to a legitimate rule, the employee can be disciplined. And if the employment is employee is completely insubordinate, the employee will get fired. And so although, yeah, it is hard to fire people um, for, um, you know, various things like arriving late to work, otherwise impeding the efficiency of the civil service. If the employee says, look, I'm just not going to obey the law, normally that is a reason for the employee to be fired. Now, in the course of the hearing, the employee might try to raise some objections to the legality of the um, executive policy um, requiring vaccination. The board may say, you know, the policy is illegal because it's not statutorily authorized. For instance, it violates the Federal Labor Relations Act. But again, I think the merits of those statutory claims are pretty weak. So although it is hard to fire people, it isn't hard to fire people who don't follow orders. Yeah, yeah, I have to say that I think this is going to be, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily the most effective, but I think it's it's going to be the most solid ground that the, that the president's actions, uh, of the president's actions, this is the piece that I think uh, is going to be the least susceptible to challenge. Not, I'm not saying the others are. I'm going to be interested to hear what you have to say about them. But I think our listeners are always wary or wondering what might happen uh, when things things that they assume are going to be, uh, are you know, going to be a certain way sometimes don't turn out that way. It, it seems to me that this piece of the administration's actions will be difficult to challenge. And there is an effective enforcement mechanism. Is that is that your judgment? Yeah, I think certainly it's the easiest one for the administration to defend. I still think, you know, obviously um, one objection to the uh, a rule, and this would, remember, the executive order is not going to be the thing that's going to be enforced. This is going to be a rule from the um, General Services Administration and or from OPM itself you know, you could challenge the rule on the ground that it's not truly necessary, but the, you know, and for certain kinds of federal employees, you can imagine it's not necessary to protect the public because they don't interact with the public. Is it necessary to protect their coworkers? Well, you can imagine that there's some kinds of federal employees who are out in the field who don't come in contact with too many coworkers, you know, a park ranger in the middle of nowhere. But for the most part, I imagine that this is both defensible as a statutory matter, um, as a matter of administrative law, 
that it's not arbitrary and capricious, and certainly as a constitutional matter. So yeah, this seems to me like it's on pretty strong ground. All right, now let's move kind of one step out to federal contractors. To me, I think that's the logical next place to go. Um, Can you just explain to us who federal contractors are and then how, um, you know, how the federal government has authority with respect to, uh, to, to make any requirements or or uh, or uh, have any conditions uh, re- related to federal contractors? Sure. Um, federal contractors are anybody who sells goods or services to the federal government. So if you sell laptops to the federal government or warplanes to the federal government, or you are you clean federal government buildings, you know, you're some kind of janitorial service, you're a federal contractor. Um, the electrician who comes to fix the lights in the White House is a federal contractor. Federal contractors are right in the wheelhouse of the president. Indeed, until the 1940s, there wasn't even a federal statute regulating how the president treats federal contractors. The normal rule is Congress would appropriate money to buy goods and services from private firms, and then the president just spends the money. And except for one Civil War statute that required competitive bidding for some stuff, basically the president makes up the rules. In the late 1940s, Congress finally enacted something called the Procurement Act, but it has very loose standards about how federal governments are to be governed by the president. It does require that the president should make rules um, for the efficient and economic procurement of goods and services. Um, And since the 1940s, there's been a few other statutes regulating competitive bidding and regulating um, basic procurement that the president has to obey. None of those statutes are especially relevant here. Um, So generally, the president has a pretty free hand in deciding who the federal government is going to do business with. Nevertheless, the D.C. Circuit has held that when the president issues rules for buying goods and services from private firms, the president has to show that they are not simply gratuitous rules designed to meddle with the firm's internal activities, but are rules that are necessary to benefit the federal government. Um, A good example of this is that way back in the 90s, um, the D.C. Circuit held that President Clinton could not bar firms from doing business with the federal government because they had unfair labor practices complaints pending against them. And essentially, the D.C. Circuit said, look, we have a regulatory scheme for labor relations. And that regulatory scheme supplants, takes away the president's authority to sort of use the contracting process to force firms to bargain collectively with, um, you know, with unions. So the president doesn't have unlimited power, but if the president can show that a presidential policy is necessary for the efficient procurement of services, then the president can certainly require that contractors have their employees get vaccinated. Yeah, so that that is sort of a whole set. You could, as you could see, I'm just saying this for listeners' benefit. The questions here are very different. In other words, the 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 the, the questions regarding uh, that are raised by requiring employees uh, to be vaccinated are really regarding whether or not this is related to their employment, whether it's arbitrary. Um, this is essentially whether or not this is something that is reasonably related to the sort of efficient procurement of 
of resources for the federal government, essentially. it's Yeah. Is it related to the contract? So let me give you an example. Suppose you're an electrical firm and you have always been used by the White House to provide electrical services. I'm just making this up. Um, is it related to the contract that the electrician who comes into the White House be vaccinated? The answer to that to me is obviously it is. You can't have an unvaccinated person infecting the White House. Now, suppose that there's a receptionist at this firm. Is it related to the contract that the receptionist be vaccinated? Well, maybe, but the receptionist isn't coming to the White House. You know, you're not buying the receptionist services. You're buying the electrician services. Now, maybe you could argue, well, if the receptionist is not vaccinated, the electrician could get infected. And so this is related to the services that are actually being provided on federal property. But as you get farther and farther away from the services that the firm is providing directly to the federal government, the argument becomes more and more tenuous. So imagine if Biden said, hey, McDonnell Douglas, I want you to vaccinate every one of your employees, even those that are working in divisions that have nothing to do with warplanes, that are not even coming into contact with the Department of Defense. That seems like a bit of a stretch now, doesn't it? You know, so the fact that McDonnell Douglas is buying, building commercial aircraft at a geographic location far from anything that has anything to do with the Department of Defense, what in the world does that have to do with providing services to the federal government? I could see McDonnell Douglas, if it wanted to, challenging a policy that was that broad, requiring every single one of their employees to be vaccinated. And just so everyone understands, you know, there, there's an important caveat there that the professor mentioned, which is, if they want to, it very well may be the case that companies that do business with the federal government actually are happy that the federal government is giving them an excuse to require their employees to be vaccinated and essentially taking it off their shoulders and putting it on the government's. In other words, McDonnell Douglas might be able to say, well, employees, you've got to get vaccinated, not because we want you to, but because the federal government's making that a requirement and we're, we're going to do business with the federal government. Sorry. And that actually may be something that the management of the company might want to have happen, but would prefer to have that be on the federal government versus otherwise. In other words, it may not actually be the case that companies that could challenge this requirement will. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Absolutely. And keep in mind that pre-enforcement review of any federal government's policy, rule, etc., is, if not always discouraged, at least not always available, right? So imagine that I'm an electrical firm that sometimes does business with some agency. You know, the agency hires me to fix their, um, their lighting, um, and I get wind of this policy that everybody has to be vaccinated. I can't just march into court and say, well, I'm, you can't enforce this against me. Because it might very well be that that, agency, that electrical firm doesn't have a pending contract. Or even if it does, that the agency with which it deals is not enforcing the policy against it. Now, why wouldn't the agency enforce the policy against it? Well, maybe because it's going to be several months before they need to get their light fixed. You know, and so if the policy is not actually being enforced against you, you don't really have standing to challenge it um, unless you can show that enforcement is imminent. And even if you have standing, the court might very well say enforcement is not ripe now um, or, you know, a court challenge is not ripe now. So ripeness and standing are, are obstacles to enforcement by any firm, any contractor. 
that's not directly being told by the federal government, hey, vaccinate that employee or vaccinate your employees, or we're going to terminate your contract. And if they're not terminating your contract, it's not clear why you should be marching into court. Exactly right. And I, and I just want to clarify for our listeners what that all means. I mean, essentially, when he's talking about standing, it says your ability to be in court. In other words, we can't the courts don't listen to hypothetical uh, legal arguments uh, and decide hypothetical situations uh, or make policy pronouncements. At least that's not what they're supposed to be doing. What they're supposed to be doing is deciding actual issues, cases where there are where there's a, a harm that is being, you know, either being felt by one of the parties or is is imminently going to to be felt by that that person. So in other words, I, uh, you know, uh, Renato Mariotti can't sue because I, you know, don't like the uh, federal, uh, the fact that federal contractors, I'm not saying I do, but I'm just saying hypothetically, me or some other person couldn't just sue because we don't like what the Biden administration is doing. It has to be somebody not only who is this is a contractor in this situation, but actually, as Professor Hills is pointing out, would be in a situation where this policy would actually be enforced against them at that at that moment in time or very soon thereafter. Is that? Yeah. Now, keep in mind that pre-enforcement, so-called pre-enforcement review, review of a policy before it's actually being enforced against you is very common in American administrative law. This is usually done with the rules. Um, right after the rule is issued by an agency, somebody who's affected by the rule, often a firm, will bring an action saying this rule is illegal. That kind of action is common. Um, whether it would be allowed in the case of a contractor challenging a um, executive policy on contracting, where there was a perfectly adequate alternative method for challenging that policy, namely when the contract was being terminated. Um, that's an open question. I imagine if I were a contractor and I wanted to challenge the rule, but my contract had not yet been terminated, what I would say is this puts my entire operation in um, limbo. My bank banker, my insurer, they're all of a sudden telling me they don't know where they can continue to finance me because um, it looks like I'm, my contract might be terminated. I think that that kind of complaint would be enough to confer standing and also make the contractor's complaint ripe. But as you say, I imagine the larger contractors are perfectly happy to go along with this policy. One nice thing about this policy that makes it the kind of policy a contractor wouldn't want to challenge is it's really, really cheap. Unlike a lot of other things that the federal government requires contractors to do, um, including to do regarding COVID, like have personal protective equipment or even respirators. Getting vaccinated doesn't cost very much. And vaccinating your employees doesn't get, get it cost very much because it's covered by your existing insurance policies. So I imagine hiring a bunch of expensive lawyers to challenge a policy that doesn't cost you a penny. That's not going to be a popular move with a lot of contractors. But that's just my guess. Well, as yeah, somebody who represents companies and individuals in private practice uh, regularly, I, I, I think that's you're on the right track. Uh, I do want to talk uh, about I want to switch gears to talk about OSHA, because I think that this is where, to me, there really can be um, a, a legal battle that that 
that will be very interesting for our listeners to pay attention to. So you talked a little bit about healthcare workers versus, you know, the administration's other, uh, you know, the, uh, the other announcement of what they intend to do regarding, you know, via OSHA. Uh, but can you explain that to us and, and where, wh- whether or not the administration, kind of how firm of ground the administration is on, on those actions? Sure. I want to just divide OSHA into four parts quickly and hope make this clear. First of all, OSHA directly prohibits, and here's the language of the statute, recognized hazards likely to cause serious physical harm in the workplace. So regardless of what Biden does, even if Biden didn't lift a finger, if you were an employer and you maintained a recognized hazard in the workplace that was likely to cause serious physical harm, the federal government can bring an action against you. So to a certain extent, if it's true that having unvaccinated employees at your workplace causes or is likely to cause serious physical harm to a coworker, the, uh, the OSHA administrator right now could bring an action against any employer covered by OSHA. Now, the employers covered by OSHA have to be in or affecting interstate commerce, but that's a whole lot of employers. The other thing that, so that's the first thing you have to understand. Biden doesn't have to do a darn thing for the Department of Labor to basically sue an employer for maintaining unsafe working conditions. And it's pretty much understood that airborne particles, including infectious agents, can be hazardous working conditions. So for instance, you know, if some firm had a bunch of toxic chemicals wafting around um, in the atmosphere such that employees were getting lung cancer, obviously the OSHA administrator could come in and sue them. Second category. The OSHA administrator can also promulgate what are known as standards to govern occupational safety and health. And that's pursuant to Section 6 of the Act. The basic idea is that the OSHA administrator can say, this specific thing we're going to deem to be a threat to occupational safety and health. We don't have to prove it case by case. There's over 50, over 60, I think, standards of this sort. They're all over the place. They govern things like, for instance, coal dust, Um, they govern, um, the position of toilets, um, the, you know, ladders, slip and fall risk. Um, and so these standards could be, um, promulgated to govern vaccination and COVID infection. The problem is that for a normal OSHA standard, you need to go through what's known as notice and comment rulemaking, which means you need to publish a description of the proposed standard in a publication called the Federal Register. And then you have to solicit comments from the interested public. And then you have to respond to those comments. Now you might think that's not so difficult. However, on average, it takes about 93 months. That's more than seven years to promulgate a standard. Isn't that crazy? And that's just because workplace standards tend to be very technical. They involve a lot of science. Um, Typically, OSHA will consult something called the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health for advice as to what are safe exposure levels. So if the Biden administration went through the normal administrative process for a standard, chances are it wouldn't get done even in this this term for a vaccination standard. So there's the third option. Not just directly enforcing the act and not promulgating a standard through notice and comment rulemaking, But if a standard is necessary to prevent, and here's what the statute says, a grave danger to workers, then the OSHA administrator can promulgate what's known as an emergency temporary standard, an ETS. 
that this sort of standard is temporary and that can only last for six months. It's emergency in that you can bypass all this notice and comment rulemaking and issue it immediately. And that's what the Biden administration did with healthcare workers, um, healthcare employers, I should say, um, regarding training, ventilation, personal protective equipment, and social distancing, what is known collectively as a COVID plan. That was done in July. Um, and that ETS was challenged by a couple of unions, um, but one of the unions withdrew their challenge. So that's what Biden has instructed the Department of Labor to do um, with regard to employers of more than 100 workers, um, issue an ETS, an emergency temporary standard, um, to govern workplace safety, um, requiring vaccination where necessary to prevent, quote, a grave danger, unquote. Now, those are three categories of OSHA action, but I want to mention a fourth that hasn't been noticed much in the news. States have the opportunity under the Occupational Safety and Health Act to issue their own standards, including their own emergency temporary standards. 21 states indeed have authority from the OSHA administrator to implement the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Um, and some of those states have standards for aerial transmissible diseases. California has such a standard. Michigan has such a standard. Virginia has such a standard. And so states might actually go forward and say, hey, we're going to require vaccination under federal law pursuant um, to our authority given to us by the OSHA administrator. Those are the four options. Biden has taken advantage of the third. And as you point out, there is an opportunity for some legal challenges to Biden's uh, to, to the Department of Labor's um, standard to prevent, quote, a grave danger to workers. So I'll start at a high level. A lot, a lot of our listeners are asking questions. We kind of solicited questions, and they're really interested about how the Supreme Court might ultimately view this, which, of course, we can't – neither of us can perfectly predict because we don't have a telescope that looks into the mind and the heart of uh, the nine uh, Supreme Court justices. But – I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that the fact that the administration is grounding this in OSHA is helpful. But I think what listeners might be interested in is, are there any precedents that would be helpful or that might guide or shape the Supreme Court's view of this particular action related to employers with 100 employees or more? Yeah, none none from the Supreme Court, because actually the... Um... I mean, none, none that are directly rela, rela, related to the relevant to the case from the Supreme Court, because the OSHA administrator actually does not issue very many emergency temporary standards. Um, the last emergency temporary standard that was held invalid was held invalid by a lower court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That was back in 1983. Um, and there, the Fifth Circuit was um, dealing with a new emergency standard for asbestos exposure. Um, the federal government said, we don't have time to go through notice and comment, but we want to essentially change the exposure limits for employees who might be exposed to asbestos. And what the Fifth Circuit said is, hey, we understand that asbestos is a grave danger, um, but you haven't shown that this standard is necessary to stop the grave danger because there's already in place a respirator standard for anybody who's working around asbestos. Basically, employers have to provide a respirator under a standard that's been around for a long time. Um, and the respirator has to fit and it has to work and it has to keep out asbestos. 
So the Fifth Circuit says, why isn't the existing standard sufficient? You haven't shown that this is truly necessary. Basically, um, the OSHA administrator claimed that 80 employees could potentially die of asbestosis if they didn't lower the standard. And the Fifth Circuit said, you haven't shown that because those 80 employees presumably would all be wearing respirators that should fix the problem. So those are the only precedents that exist. They don't bind the Supreme Court. But I think the Supreme Court would be heavily influenced by the fact that lower courts have been pretty demanding when um, confronted with one of the OSHA administrators' ETSs, emergency standards. And essentially the way the lower courts have reasoned is they've said, look, um, the statute specifically provides for a fairly lengthy procedure before you issue a standard. If you're not going to use that procedure, you have to show it's really, really necessary to bypass that procedure because there's a grave danger and that your emergency standard is necessary to address that grave danger. And I think the necessity proof is where the Biden administration is going to have the biggest problem Um, because it's not obvious that vaccinated workers are in grave danger from unvaccinated workers. After all, they're vaccinated. There are breakthrough cases, but the breakthrough cases tend to be mild. So the danger comes from other unvaccinated workers. And it's not clear how many of those there will be. Um, and it's you know, not clear how threatened they are if most of the workers at their particular workplace are vaccinated. So it might be possible that, as a matter of fact, the Biden administration cannot show that these employees at some firm that employs more than 100 workers Um, are under a grave danger if everybody at the workplace is not vaccinated. And one thing that, um, you know, affected people might say, firms, for instance, might say, is, look, we already have respirators. We already have personal protective equipment. We already have social distancing. We require our employees to have masks. Why isn't that enough? Given that a lot of our employees are vaccinated. Now, I don't think this is really going to be an issue for the Supreme Court. I think it's going to be an issue for the district court because presumably this is going to be first challenged before a fact finder, the district court. And a federal district court will issue facts, fact findings about, well, exactly how necessary this thing is. And it's going to be pretty fact specific. Different kinds of employers have different kinds of employment setups where workers are exposed to each other. If coworkers aren't exposed to each other very much, I mean, say you're a telephone company and a big part of your workforce is out in the field up on telephone poles. If they're not exposing other workers because they're out in the field, it might not be the case that you, they absolutely have to be vaccinated to avoid a grave danger to coworkers. On the other hand, workers at meatpacking plants, boy, they really do work in a confined area where there's a high chance of COVID infection. In those cases, I can imagine that um, the Biden administration would be on strong ground. And here is why speculation about what the Supreme Court would do with a challenge to an ETS, which hasn't even been issued yet, is really kind of premature. Because the ETS might exempt the field workers who aren't exposing other workers. The ETS might be very complicated and say, look, we're going to have a waiver procedure if an employer can show that their coworkers aren't exposing each other or if they have alternative mechanisms from, for stopping infection from aerosol particles. So really, it's kind of premature to speculate about what a court would do 
with an ETS that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and that, those are some important caveats. I think we all like to look ahead. I know Sue Brown is one of our listeners has already bet a pie with her neighbor over what the Supreme Court's going to do. And I think uh, your caution is well well taken, Professor Hills, which is we don't even know what the, the what the rule is going to be that the ETS is going to be yet. And exempting this, just so everyone understands, the one of the values of these exemptions and writing the rule very carefully is it can prevent uh, a case where the rule would would obviously be silly, right? Let's say everybody works from home, a particular employer, everyone works from home, uh, and you know wouldn't be coming into contact with one another. You know, it would it would exempt, for example, potentially those employers. One thing that we've had a number of listeners ask about, Professor John Mitchell, for example, asked about was this 1905 case that they've been seeing a lot of legal analysts and others in the media talk about um, that it, it was a Supreme Court decision relating to vaccination that many are saying, OK, well, this decides the issue. This essentially um, uh, closes the book and makes clear that what President Biden did was constitutional. I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, would you explain that to us? Sure. Um, I really think it's important um, for folks to understand that the Constitution is the last resort, not the first resort of a lawyer. The Biden administration's ETS, when it is finally issued, will actually be extremely vulnerable to legal challenge, but not under the Constitution, under the statute. I always tell my students, look, go to the Constitution last, go to the statute first, because the president can't do anything that contradicts a federal statute assuming the statute itself is constitutional. And so the real way to challenge the OSHA Act ETS is to go to the actual words of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. In this case, the words that say this, has, this ETS has necessary to stop a grave danger to employees. So forget about Jacobson. That's irrelevant. Even if Biden can do this under the Constitution, if he can't do it under the statute, um, the... Um, the policy is illegal. You know, just think of this as you get two shots on goal and one of them is a lot easier to make than the other. One is the constitutional shot. We say, well, Biden did his unconstitutional and everybody likes to rush to the constitution, you know, because it's kind of dramatic. Um, but the other shot on goal is, and by the way, it's not consistent with the statute, even if it is consistent with the constitution. Suppose that we agree that it, for a particular employer, there is a grave danger to workers um, that is being prevented by an ETS. So you've satisfied the statute. Only then would it be relevant to bring in some kind of constitutional challenge, like for instance, this policy threatens the right of workers or employers to free exercise of religion. That's where Jacobson comes in. Jacobson is essentially a claim that says a state policy Massachusetts policy requiring Reverend Henning Jacobson to get vaccinated violates Reverend Henning Jacobson's free exercise rights. And what the court held way back in 1905, the Supreme Court held, is that there is such a public interest in preventing the spread of disease that Henning Jacobson's religious rights would have to yield. This is consistent with modern free exercise doctrine. Modern free exercise doctrine says you have the right to free exercise of religion, 
But if it's necessary to serve a compelling interest to limit your rights of free exercise, the government can do so. So if it is the case that some standard has passed, some ETS has passed the statutory standard of preventing a grave danger to fellow workers from infection, that it's necessary to prevent this grave danger of infecting coworkers with COVID. It's almost impossible for me to believe that Jacobson wouldn't apply because if you're preventing a grave danger to coworkers, then it seems like it's also necessary to advance a compelling governmental interest. What's the governmental interest? The governmental interest of preventing a grave danger. So to a certain extent, I think if you satisfy the statute, you automatically satisfy Jacobson and you satisfy the free exercise clause. And Jacobson, just to be clear, is the name of that Supreme Court case that a lot of you have been hearing in the news. I I will say that what I'm hoping that listeners are learning from this conversation is that, first of all, this is not a black or white thing in terms of a win or loss for the Biden administration. In other words, it's potentially the case that courts could uphold certain actions that have been taken by the administration, let's say related to federal employees or contractors and not others. Uh, In addition to that, I also wonder, and I'm curious about your thoughts, Professor Hills, is is whether or not this could be ultimately a win for the administration's goals of promoting vaccination, even if they ultimately lose in the OSHA side of things. Because in the meantime, a lot of employers are going to get their employees vaccinated. In other words, you know, a lot of employers in anticipation of this may say, OK, well, the federal government's doing this or going to be doing this. We're going to get our folks vaccinated. And if several months from now, a court ends up making a decision about uh, the authority of the administration to do this, uh, it may be uh, not even really matter at that point as a practical uh, as a practical matter. Yeah, that's I want to emphasize how important really boring procedural stuff is to lawyers, Um, because I mentioned ripeness earlier. Ripeness is a fancy term, legal term, for the court saying you're filing your lawsuit too soon. Imagine if some small firm that employs 100 people or more that is covered by the executive order were to challenge the executive order right now, to march right into the federal court and say, we don't like this executive order because it violates our employees' religious rights to be exempt from vaccination. I think the right thing for the court to do would be to say, your challenge is not ripe wait until we have a standard. But notice that lots of other employers are going to be moving ahead right away saying, hey, we have to get a vaccination in place because we want to anticipate, we want to get ahead of the game as far as this pending ETS is concerned. And so it might be that for many months, a whole bunch of employers are going to be citing the federal policy as a reason to install vaccination. Meanwhile, nobody can challenge the federal ETS because it hasn't been issued yet. You know, and so there's a sense in which the Biden executive order creates a momentum all of its own to provide cover for employers to do what they probably often already want to do, which is to require vaccination. I mean, it makes sense for employers because, after all, insurance rates may be affected um, by high rates of infection. Certainly absenteeism is affected by infection. And so they want to stop the infection. And if they can stop the infection by saying, hey, the federal government made me do it, they'll do it, even if it's the case that the federal government actually hasn't made them do it quite yet. The federal government has merely announced that they're going to make them do it. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting pieces here in terms of 
of this. I, for for the last four years, a lot of our listeners have heard uh, have been frustrated at times when there's been things that appeared to be unconstitutional or unlawful, and the courts were taking their time to resolve it. And there were consequences in the meantime. Here, I think that this the shoes on the other foot. I think in in a certain respect, there I. I do want to end with a question that or an issue that has been raised by one of our listeners and is that, you know, I think that listener is concerned that the use of OSHA in this manner could be a dangerous precedent, could be used in a way that would be uh, alarming uh, in the future. I'm curious, you know, do are is that something that is a valid concern for our listeners? What what should we be thinking about in terms of the long term precedent set by these actions? Oh, I mean, the big question, I guess, is um, how easily do you want the Department of Labor to be able to say workers are in such grave danger that we're going to issue a standard nickety split? We're going to do it really fast. And my guess is that courts are going to hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire and demand real proof that there's an emergency. And therefore, the Biden administration anticipating that is going to write a well-crafted rule with lots of exemptions and waivers to make sure that you're not overreacting, you're engaging in overkill. So that's one worry. And I'm not too worried about the precedent simply because lower courts have been pretty demanding that you show a real emergency if you're going to use an emergency temporary standard. There's another worry, which is that just vaccination is different from other kinds of workplace safety measures. And I guess I'm not so worried about that being a, quote, precedent, because we've acquired vaccinations of various categories of people, including young children, for decades. Um, People mention the 1905 precedent of Jacobson. But keep in mind that since 1922, the court reiterated in a case called Zucht versus King, for those who are interested, that um, school children can be required to get vaccinated as as a condition of education. And that precedent has been reiterated by state courts, like state courts in Arizona, for instance. So it's commonplace for little kids to be required to get vaccinated as a condition of education, one of the most fundamental rights we have. If states, and presumably the federal government as well, can require as a condition of enrollment of school that you get vaccinated, I'm not sure why people think it's so darn unprecedented to require employees to get vaccinated as a condition of not infecting their coworkers. I guess I just think there's a lot of precedent of requiring vaccination. Um, Keep in mind, George Washington required his own troops to be vaccinated from smallpox way back at the beginning of the Republic. So when people say, oh, it's so unprecedented to require vaccines, that's just not actually the case. Now, it is unprecedented, as far as I know, to require employers as a condition of employment to vaccinate their employees. And maybe people regard the move from little kids in kindergarten to employees as being a very dramatic step. But frankly, I think it's much more dramatic for the government to require kids to get vaccinated, sometimes against their parents' wishes, as opposed to requiring adults who should know better to get vaccinated um, as a condition of work. So, you know, my, my own sense is we should hold our horses before judging the ETS and wait for the ETS actually to be issued. Um, that if the ETS passes statutory muster, that is to say the courts agree that it stops a grave danger in the workplace, then that's probably a good sign that it's not all that unprecedented to require a vaccination um, in this context. 
Well, our listeners are used to uh, the situation being a lot more complicated than they thought when they were watching a news show or reading a very quick blurb online. And I appreciate you, Professor, because I I have learned a lot from you during the course of this conversation. If that wasn't obvious to all of our listeners, I appreciate you coming on. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 